Now, when I got to the other side, there were already officers waiting for me. There's like an area big enough for two cars to drive by at the same time. There is a second fence. I remember running through the officers and took off and climbing the second wall and landed on the other side. They were in awe. I remember one of the officers screaming at, at the other ones, what is it? What is it? Hi, I'm Wayne Jacobson, and this is my friend Lewis. The story of one of the most engaging men I've ever met, and of the friendship that developed between us. It has transformed both of our lives and left us in grateful awe at the adventure of life on this little planet. We began this story on the night of December 19, 1994, with 21-year-old Lewis trying to cross the border back into the U.S. He had no idea how much things had changed in Tijuana that led to his capture and assault by the police. In episode one, we left him beneath the wall, freezing and covered in sewage. He just discovered a handwritten note on a piece of paper that turned a painful, terrifying night into a celebration of unmitigated joy. But he still hopes to cross the border and get back to his family in the United States. Let's pick up the story where the indigent people amassed on the border are making fun of him because of the euphoric moment that has overtaken him. I continued to read the note over and over and over, and I continued to cry and cry and cry. I don't know what time it was by then, all of a sudden, I heard this voice, the same voice that, that told me, stop, when the police officers were chasing me. That same voice, this time, he, he called me and see, he said, come to me. But he called me from beyond the fence. I don't know if you've seen this fence, but it's not, not an ordinary fence. It's uh, that fence was at least 25 feet. Uh, high and on the top it curves and then it has this pointy things like a spear on the top and on the curve they place barbed wire it's really it's really dense and thick the barbed wire on top but the thing is that when where it curves it curves into the canal so it's no longer 25 feet if you fall down you're gonna fall up to 50 or 60 feet maybe more uh, because of the canal goes down so I start hearing, I hear it three times, and I knew that it was my father calling me back to him. I remember looking around, and I didn't know why at the time, but there was an old jacket in there. So I remember walking towards it. I remember wrapping it around my waist. I don't know why. And, and then I, I, closed, I remember closing my eyes, looking towards the wall, that tall, mighty wall. I looked at it and it seemed to me like nothing. I remember running towards the wall. When I was running towards the wall, the, the people, the, all the homeless, they, they saw me and heard all of that because I was crying. I was crying and running. And I was screaming, yes, father, yes, 
yes, I'll come to you. In my mind, I wasn't crossing the border. In my mind, I was coming to my father. In my mind, I wasn't breaking the law. In my mind, I was embracing my father. I was running and I just want, wanted to just run towards him, give him a hug and sit on his lap. That's what I wanted. I could hear the people behind me going like, the stinky has gone mad. The stinky has gone mad. Look at him. He thinks he can climb the wall. Look at him. And those walls, they don't make it easy for a reason, of course. There is areas where one welding overlaps the other one and you might be able to put your pinky on it. You might. If you're if you're a rock climber, uh, you know if, if somebody's a rock climber, they'll be to them should be okay. You know, not easy, but okay. You know they can probably climb it. Regular people, like you know, like I don't know about you, but me, it was impossible. So as I started running, I didn't stop. Uh, I took off running towards the wall. I jumped and then I keep crawling, putting my putting my my little my fingers where I could and pushing myself up with them. And then when, when all these people saw what was going on, they changed their tune. Instead of screaming, the sticky has gone crazy, to sube pelayo, sube, sube pelayo, sube. There was an old TV show in Mexico a long time ago, uh, probably in the 70s or 60s. The host of this show, his name was Pelayo. And he used to have a, a pole that on the top, he used to put a bag with money, right? They used to put, I don't know if it was Vaseline around it to make it uh, slippery. When uh, one of the contestants tried to uh, go up, they screamed the same thing, sube, pelayo, sube, which means go up, pelayo, go up. Pelayo is the name of the host, but you know he wasn't going up, but that's what they were chanting. And they were screaming that, sube, pelayo, sube. sube. They were like chanting for me in support. And then when they saw that I was climbing up, I guess they got inspired. They all run towards the wall and, and try to climb it too. Meanwhile, I could hear the INS officers on their cars amassing right on that area on the other side. They could hear us, they're right there. When I got to the top, that's when I knew what the jacket was for. I grabbed myself with the right from one of the spears-like, you know, pointy things. And then with my left, I took the jacket and threw it on top, right on top of it. And I pulled myself right on top of it. And that's how I jumped the first fence. At the other side, you could hear the people screaming because they were falling down into the canal, trying to climb the fence. It was impossible. Now, when I got to the other side, there were already officers waiting for me. There's like an area big enough for two cars to drive by at the same time. There is a second fence. The second fence, it's kind of like the, the first one, but this one doesn't have the barbed wire on top. So I, I remember running through the officers and took off and, and jumped and climbed to the, uh, the second wall and landed on the other side. They were in awe. I remember one of the officers screaming at, at the other one, what is it, what is it? They were like, obviously they knew it was a human, but they go like, what was that? What is that? They were trying to reach for me. They, they, they tried to grab me. I mean, I felt so strong. I felt so, you know what? I, 
thank God I never really used drugs in my life. But if it was, if, uh, if the word high, at that moment, I was so high on the power of the Holy Spirit. In the book of Psalms, it says, with my God, I will jump the walls. Now I know exactly what it means. When I landed at the other side, I hurt my ankle. And then uh, right there at that point, you could hear cars scrambling, you know, uh, INS officers scrambling everywhere. There, there were an ATVs. I could hear them in horses. Uh, I mean, bikes everywhere trying to catch this, whatever it was. I could hear the radio and the radio going like, he jumped the second fence, he jumped the second fence. And on the other side, screaming, get ready, get ready. When I landed on the other side, when I hurt my feet, at that point, there were three cars. I remember there was a Chevy Blazer. There was a Ford Bronco in front of me, closer to me. And there was a Crown Vic to my right. Since the Bronco was closer to me, I started limping towards them. I didn't try to run. I just walked towards them. And I, and I was still crying. With the paper still on my right hand. I never put it away. I always had it on my hand. How? I have no idea. I didn't thought about putting it on my pocket. I didn't do that. I just had it with my, on my right hand at all, at all times. As I start getting closer to these first two officers, there were two. One of them was younger than the other. The younger one, he opened the, the, the rear gate on the back and he lifted the glass and then he pulled the gate for me to get in. So I limped towards him. I remember him, uh, I was crying. And then when he heard me crying, he says, don't worry, don't worry, we're gonna give you medical attention. He said that, he thought I was crying because I was hurt. And in my mind, I was like, what a difference. You know, over there in the Mexican side, they try to kill me and over here, this guy doesn't even know me, you know, sees me hurt and he's trying to help me. So I was trying to get into the Bronco. He tried to help me and he noticed that I was really wet. You know, I was covered in poop. He got a whiff of it, he's like, oh my and took a step back. So he went back inside and he put on gloves. The other officer, the older officer, put on gloves also. So I put my hands forward and he handcuffed me. And then I kind of roll towards the back and kind of sit down. They have little plastic seats in there. On the back, they have a light, a little light that they control, of course, to see through the rearview mirror what's going on in the back too. Uh, they left it on. As we were driving, I started reading the notes and I started crying again because in my mind, it was a note written by the, by the hand of God for me to, at that very moment. The younger one kept saying, don't worry about it. We're gonna give you medical attention soon and you have no more pain. And I couldn't even tell them because I couldn't put myself together enough to, to put a few words together to tell them, it's not what you think. I'm not crying because of pain. I'm crying because I'm full of joy. At, the, at that moment, I knew what joy really was. It wasn't really happiness. No, no, no. It was something that, that can be just come and go, it's emotion. It wasn't. It was much stronger than that, something I never experienced. And when I started reading it, I kept crying, but more like silently. I could hear them talking. And the older officer said to the younger one, he says, hey, happy birthday. He, sa he says, oh, thanks, thanks. 
I keep reading it and I keep crying more and more. Then all of a sudden, he, the younger officer got curious, I guess. So he asked me, what is it that you're crying for? What are you crying about? And then I said, look, look, God loves me so much. Look, look what it says. This is in the Bible, isn't it? But I don't know where it is. Look, isn't it this on the Bible? He kind of like stopped. You know, you could stop anywhere. We're in the mountain. He stopped and looked at it. And then he started reading it. And at first, I remember, I, I remember, remember very distinctively that when he took it, even though he had gloves, he kind of like pinched it with one of the corners because he didn't want to, you know, it, it was, you know, had pieces of poop too. And then he started reading. And uh, when he started reading, he said, you're right, it is beautiful. And, I, and then I said, it is in the Bible, isn't it? It is in the Bible, right? He says, yeah, it's on the Bible, but I don't know where it is. So he gave it back to me and kept driving and I kept reading it and crying. Then I, I remember that it was his birthday and I just want to wish him a happy birthday. So I said, happy birthday, officer. And then he says, oh, he says, thanks. Kind of like weirded out. Like, like, oh, who's this guy? He's wishing me a happy birthday. Okay. I mean, he wasn't expecting it from me, I guess. And then I said, if you don't mind me asking, how old are you? He paused and then he says, that's a personal question. Uh, and then the other officer says, yeah, how old are you? And, and then he says, uh, he's kind of like hesitant, not because of the other officer, but because of me. He want to give out an information, I guess. He says, okay, I'm, I'm 43, okay, I'm 43. And then I said to him, officer, what's your name? And then he paused even longer and he says, why should I give you my name? And then the older officer, obviously more experienced, he says, it's already in your batch. He's actually entitled to your name. And he, and he says, okay, my name is Isaiah. Then I said, huh, I don't know why I said that. I said, Isaiah 43. All of a sudden, he turned around really quick and looked at me. And he said, what did you just say? I said, oh, I said, I I'm sorry, officer. I didn't mean to offend you. And then he said, no, what did you just say? I said, oh, I said, happy birthday. He said, no, 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 after that. I said, oh, what is your name? He says, after that, I said, oh, how old you were? He says, give me the piece of paper, give me a piece of paper. But this time he didn't care about grabbing it by the corner. He just picked it, grabbed it and started reading it. All of a sudden he said, I think this is Isaiah 43. And then he started crying. And then his friends started crying and I started crying and we were all crying. And we cried there for, ah, gosh, I don't know for how long, but we cried for a while. And after that, they composed themselves. And I said composed because you could see I was fighting it myself to try to put myself together. The younger one signals the older one with his finger, say, with his finger saying, come, 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 follow me. 
they went outside away from the uh, car, from the truck, and they started talking. The only thing I could hear was, because they were the, the older officer with a louder voice, he was saying, we cannot do that. We can't do that. We can't. We just can't. Then after uh, discussing that for a while, they came back to the car. The younger officer, uh, came, when he came back, he unfolded the, the, the seat and he pulled this pair of pants. And then he got this sweater. It's, it was a hoodie. And then he went through the back. He opened the back gate. And then he said, here, he says, take off your, those pants, put this on, take off that wet shirt that you have, and put this hoodie on. You know what? When I put those pants, it felt so good to have some something dry. And when I put that hoodie, it felt so good and warm. I felt as if God was himself was hugging me. Uh, it was a great gray hoodie, and it said Arizona Wildcats on it. The pants were so big. They got, the guy was a big dude. Remember that he was handing me a piece of string so I can so I can keep my pants up. He says, here, tie them. And then after that, they drove off back to uh, to the uh, to the city. They drove down and they parked on a dark alley, but they didn't fill me in on anything. They just parked there. And when they parked there, I remember saying, officers, are you going to kill me? The younger one, Isaiah, he looked at me and says, don't be an idiot. He said, why, should, why would I do that? Then he walked back, opened the gate again. He said, come, 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 come. He told me that in a hurry, with, with a hurry sense, kind of like, hurry, hurry, come, come, come. Then he says, give me your hands. So I put my hands forward. He unlocked my handcuffs. He helped me down. He remember, he hugged me and helped me down carefully and tenderly put me down on the, on the ground because he didn't want me to jump because of my feet, because of my ankle. And then, and then he reached for his wallet. He had $40 and he handed them to me. He looked at his partner and said, do you have any cash? His, I remember his partner looked at him and said, he says, no, because it's your turn to buy, remember? And then he, he, he says, I guess we're fasting today. Then the, other, the older officer says, well, I have my credit card. He, pull, he, he reaches over and he pulls down $3, all he had. And when he gave it to me, and I said, huh, how funny. Your name is Isaiah, you're 43. You gave me $43 and the Bible verse, it's Isaiah 43. He started crying, his friends started crying, and I started crying again. We cried, but this time we hugged. We cried and hugged, who knows for how long. After he gave me $43, he gave me directions to the, to the local uh, McDonald's. He said, you're gonna walk three streets down straight and then on the third light, you're gonna make a left. And like one quarter of a mile on your left, you're gonna see a McDonald's. And there's a payphone outside. Call your friends to come and pick you up. So I just did that. They let me go.
it's almost impossible to believe. If I didn't know Lewis, I don't know if I would. When Lewis rejoined his family in California, he found a Bible so he could read Isaiah 43 for himself. It contained the same words he had read from the handwritten note in Spanish that kept sticking to his hand that evening. Everybody thought I was nuts after I came here to, the, uh, uh, to my house because I was reading Isaiah 43 over and over and over. I ripped the, the page off of the Bible and then I framed it. And then I put it in there so I could see it all the time. And my sister-in-law, was uh, she didn't want to go into that room because she thought it was a bad thing what I did. Believe it or not, the story doesn't end here. To finish it, however, we have to skip ahead 10 years. Lewis is now married, raising a young family in Southern California. It will still be four years before we meet. Some friends invited Lewis to attend a Promise Keepers prayer meeting on a Monday evening at a large congregation in a nearby city. At first, he was reluctant to go because he was already required to attend his own fellowship four nights a week. Still, he was drawn to go, and he was so glad he did. When I got there, they already had a, a, a name tag for me. I can't get on my neck. When I went in, there was a, the, we had two leaders. I noticed that the leaders, they didn't have name tags. The room was already full. So I just sit there towards the back. So I sit towards the back end. And then the two uh, leaders, they said, before we get started, why don't we start with the word of prayer? And then they said, does anybody have any petitions? Does anybody raise your hand? So I raised my hand. And then they said, yes, brother, what would you like us to pray for? And I said, oh, for uh, immigration stuff. They looked at each other and they kind of they kind of like smile at each other. And I then took it personal. I just I was just curious as to why they smile at each other. And then I said, is there something wrong or is that something, you know, is there something bad to asking for that? And they go like, oh, no, 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 no. They make sure they didn't get offended because they, they said, it. please, brother, don't get offended. We'll explain later. At the end of the meeting, uh, we'll talk, they said. So I said, okay. We went on with the meeting, which was great. And everybody started leaving. And I started making my way towards the door because I forgot about what they say about staying later and talking to them. And as I was leaving, uh, one of them said, oh, brother, brother, Luis, right? I said, yes. He says, would you please stay so, so we can talk? And I, and I remember what they said at the beginning. So I said, oh, yeah, sure, sure. Everybody left. And then when they left, uh, we sit down on the table and they said, look, the reason we, uh, uh, we ask you to stay and, and uh, the reason we kind of laugh at each other is because we are INS officers. At that moment, I remember apologizing. I said, I'm sorry. I said, I'm so sorry about asking for that. I apologize. They reassured me that everything was okay. And, and then they said, you know, this is off record. And they said, but if you want to talk to us, we're INS officers. And then they told me where they were. They said, look, uh, if we can help, you want to tell us. We talked for a while, probably like 20 minutes or so. Uh, one of them, the younger one, he took off his hat. He was wearing a baseball hat. He took it off and then he kind of like fixed his hair and put it back on. When I looked at him, when he took off his hat, I looked at him and I, and I was sitting on my chair and I stood up. And the same 
feeling I had when we were back at the border, that's the same feeling I started to experience at that moment. It was that honey-like thick substance that it was coming covering me and, and it was it was all over me. And I started feeling joy and peace. I remember looking at him and then I said, Isaiah, is that you? He looked all over and see if he had an, uh, a name tag. And he looked at his partner and his partner stood up and he says, how did you know me? Then I looked at him and I said, I am Luis, the guy you let go at the border 10 years ago. He looked at me, he hugged me, he cried. I cried and his friend cried. We sit there for a while, I don't know for how long, but it was a long time. We didn't say a thing. Uh, we just hugged and, and, and cry. To them, I wasn't somebody crossed illegally. I was just a brother in Christ. And to me as well, I didn't see him any different. I love them and they love me because we have the same father. Later, when, when he composed himself, he said, kind of like chuckling, he said, we were always wondering about you. We knew that God had a purpose for you, but we didn't know what it was. And then he said, I keep feeling bad because we should have told you about Jesus. He said that. We should have told you about Jesus. But here we are. He says, I was, we were always wondering. And he says, and we had you on our prayers and we were praying for you. We didn't know, but we knew that God had a purpose for you. We didn't know what it was, but here we are. And at that moment, it's when I learned that they said, with the reason we let you go, it's because we knew that it was God ordering us to let you go. And also we knew that God had a purpose for you. At that very moment, I also knew also all the whole situation, the circumstances that allowed it. He says, we didn't call then, we didn't call you and said, we have one in custody. You came to us, even though there were more witnesses, seeing you coming into the into the car, only the person who catches you or whatever, he's the one that feels the paperwork, not the others. And to them, a person is just a person. He's, I could I could easily replace you with another. He says, the reason also we let you in, he, they clearly said that it's because you came to us. That's why I didn't know why, but I was walking towards them because they were the closer one to me. But I didn't know that all of that was being orchestrated and arranged by God himself so I can come to them and not, not anybody else. Because he wanted to show himself to them as well as he wanted to show himself to me. Nobody came saying, you have to repent, you have to accept Jesus, you have to give your heart to the Lord. No, God himself came and showed himself for who he was all alone. My father. I have a loving father that loves me. So that's all that matters to me. I still remember the first time he told me that story. 
I was dumbfounded. To a passionate Christian and anti-illegal immigration Republican, it didn't fit well with my religious sensibilities, and it messed with me for weeks. We'll return to that struggle in future episodes. As it turns out, however, December 1994 was transformational in my own journey as well. One week before that 21-year-old crossed the border, I had been betrayed by my closest friend, and the result of that changed decisively the trajectory of my life that will play into the story in future episodes. Let me fill you in here. I was pastoring an interdenominational fellowship in Central California that I'd helped to plant 14 years earlier. A friend of mine joined me in the endeavor as my associate pastor, but a few years earlier, I had elevated him to my co-pastor. Others warned me not to do that, but we had become close friends in the process, and I wanted him to flourish in his own passions rather than following my lead. I even reduced my salary to elevate his so that we would make the same amount of money. I wanted people to know that the title was not ceremonial. We would share leadership of this congregation and focus on different sections of the city rather than have different job assignments. For many years, it worked out famously and our families became close as well. But beginning in 1993, things started to change. I hear rumors that a small faction of our elders are trying to take the congregation in a different direction and having secret meetings that sought to marginalize my influence. At first, I didn't believe them. When the rumors persisted, I tried to run them down by talking to those involved. Let's say these people were less than forthcoming, as I was to discover later. Tensions grew. Attempts to resolve them didn't last long. And finally, on Sunday morning, December 11, 1994, that group announced to the congregation that I had unexpectedly resigned my position and that Sarah and I were leaving the fellowship. I was out of town at the time, speaking at another congregation, and I had not offered my resignation. When people questioned what was going on, they were warned not to ask questions, but that I had some character issues that couldn't be resolved. Many took that to mean I'd had an affair or had misappropriated funds. Neither was true. When I came back from my trip, I was livid at what they had done, but glad that their duplicity was now in the open where it could be confronted. This coup had been launched by four of our 18 elders, and I thought could be easily remedied when I told people what was happening. I had been the founding pastor and had the institutional power as well as the affection of the people to win this fight. But a funny thing happened on my way to fix the problem. I had a voice in my head that offered me a different invitation. I have more to teach you if you walk away than if you stay. I knew instantly what that meant, and I wanted no part of it. I'm the third of four brothers who grew up on a farm. I was highly competitive, and I would never consider walking away from a fight, especially one that involved my income, my reputation, and 15 years of friendships with people I cared deeply about. But the thought wouldn't leave me alone. If it was from God, it wasn't a command, but an invitation. The implication was clear. Stay and fight if you want. But I want to show you something better than what you have here. I was intrigued, but also scared. How would I provide for my family? I can't just leave and make it look like what they said was true. When I shared it with my wife, she immediately thought those were God's words, and it was the route she wanted to go. I was willing to follow God if it was in fact Him, 
but I also had many reasons why it couldn't be his leading. The torment in my soul over the next few days was devastating. Everyone wanted to know what I was going to do, and I didn't know. When Saturday night rolled around, I was more intrigued by the invitation than I was afraid of its consequences. But I still wasn't sure. I at least had to go back to confront the lies and defend my reputation, or so I thought, but no matter how I tried to express myself, what would I say anyway the next morning if I went back? I'd been warned that I wouldn't be allowed to say anything in the service, but then how could they stop me? However, when I practiced what I was going to say, it all sounded so self-centered. And I kept hearing that voice, I have more to teach you if you walk away than if you stay. If God was behind this, even going back to shake the dust off my feet and tell people what was true would limit the scope of what he wanted to show me. I finally concluded that at least needed to go back to defend my wife, since the letter they had read falsely accused her of motives she didn't have. Yes, that's it. I can at least do that. At that precise moment, there was a knock on my study door, and Sarah poked her head in. I don't know what you're thinking about doing tomorrow, she said, but if you're at all thinking about going back to defend me, I don't want it, I don't need it, and I'm not going with you. She closed the door and left, and I sat there dumbfounded. How could she? Why right then? I got up and followed her into the kitchen to see what she was thinking. Here's what she said. I'm pretty sure that the voice in your head is God speaking to us, and I want to follow that. If you need to go back tomorrow for any reason, I want you to know, I love you, I support you, I'm just not going with you. And that's when I knew. Our time with that group of people was over. We were leaving the security of close friends, a paycheck, health insurance, and a reputation I'd built over 15 years. They didn't even pay me a dime in severance. Within days of the news getting out, I was offered pastoral positions at a variety of congregations, and people from communities across the U.S. wanted me to come and plant a church with them. I didn't even want to entertain those invitations. I had 15 years to build the kind of congregation I thought God wanted, and even that system was still susceptible to the selfish whims of humanity. I didn't have it in me to try again. I'm so glad now that in 1994, I walked away from what I thought was so valuable in my life to learn a better way of embracing the God I'd hungered to know. While I had learned many helpful things in my religious training, it had failed to teach me how to live in the growing confidence of my father's affection. As I was starting my trajectory out of religious obligation, Lewis was just beginning his trek inside of it. He would glean many of its benefits, of course, but he would also eventually trade the joy of discovering how much God loved him for the rigors of meeting the institutional expectations of a religion called Christianity. It happened so subtly that he wouldn't recognize it until after our lives crossed paths, and that was still 14 years into the future. 
For now, without a green card, Lewis needs to build a life in the shadows and make one more trip to Mexico to marry his childhood sweetheart, Maria, and bring her back to the United States. Next time on My Friend Lewis. I don't want my wife and my daughters to experience what I experienced in Mexico. At least at the attack, it's not physical to, to the point that my life is in danger. So I could take that. Being humiliated, stuff like that, that I can take. My, my girl's being shot at, uh, I can't. My Friend Lewis is a production of Blue Sheep Media in association with Lifestream.org. Copyright 2021 by Wayne Jacobson. All rights reserved. Produced by Ken Joy for Ken Joy Media.